Do you ever wonder if we're living in the end times? In Dr. Jeremiah's book, Where Do We Go From Here? He examines what Bible prophecy reveals about 10 phenomena happening in our world today. Order your copy this month, and if you give $75 or more, you'll also receive Dr. Jeremiah's entire teaching series on CD or DVD, correlating study guide, and his interview special on DVD. Order now at davidjeremiah.ca. That's davidjeremiah.ca. Most success stories begin with the hero paying his dues. But often the real price of success is paid later, when the acclaim and attention are long gone. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah considers the challenges faced by young David following his victory over Goliath. From his series, The Tender Warrior, here's David to introduce today's message, The High Cost of Success. And I want to thank you for joining us today. You know, I heard somebody say something years ago. I probably don't have the equation exactly right, but I want something like this. For every uh, 1,000 people who learn important lessons from success, there are 10,000 who learn more important lessons from failure. I heard it another way. Uh, uh, One time a guy was talking about how he was so close to God when he was in the hospital, and then he said he heard God say something in his heart that went like this. You're so happy and so uh, open and so successful in your hospital because you're laying there knowing you can't do anything. You're not in charge. God's in charge. When you're not in the hospital, you think you're in charge. (laughs) That's why it always doesn't turn out the way you should. And I think that's so true, isn't it? We're going to learn that today from the life of David. Today's lesson is called The High Cost of Success, and we'll get to it in a moment. First, I want to tell you that uh, you can get the series on the life of David, and you can get it on a CD and a package of two CD uh, packages, and there are two volumes of study guides that go with the series. We're doing volume one uh, here in the month of June. We'll tackle volume two in July, and we'll cover the whole life of David in two months, studying the Bible together. One of the great personalities of the Bible, and certainly important because uh, he's in the line of the Messiah. And uh, the Bible teaches that during the millennium, he will be the vice regent of the earth, standing alongside King Jesus. You probably didn't know that, but it's true, and I know where the scripture is. So David is uh, a great study, and he blesses my heart every time I read about him. Uh, We'll get to him in just a moment, but don't forget, you can get the study guides and the CD albums uh, from davidjeremiah.org, and you can also get uh, information about our tour to Israel and a lot of other good things there. So uh, why don't you visit that site today, davidjeremiah.org, and find out all about what's happening with these resources and with events that are coming up. Right now, let's get to our study of the high cost of success. Quite often in my messages, I use sports terminology as a way of illustration. That is not to in any way put someone on the outside of the message who is not locked into sports, but all of us preach through our own personalities, and that's very much a part of my life. Today I want to ask you a question that some of you will know the answers to. Uh, The question is, what do the following men have in common? Red Arbach, Vince Lombardi, Casey Stingle, and John Wooden. They're all coaches. And they were all very good coaches. And they're all men who in their own right belong in the Hall of Fame because of their coaching ability. But that's not what I had in mind. They have something else in common that sets them apart from the rest 
of those who ply the trade of coaching, and that is this. All of them won several back-to-back championships. It is a very difficult thing to be a, a champion once. It is thought to be nigh unto impossible to be a champion twice. We very seldom have NFL champions who repeat. We very seldom have Major League World Series champions who repeat. John Wooden did that at UCLA. Vince Lombardi did that with the Green Bay Packers. Casey Stingle did that with the Yankees. And Red Arbach did that with the Celtics. But few have been able to duplicate their efforts. There is something about being successful. There is something about climbing the mountain to the top and being the champion and finally having arrived at the zenith of all one's goals and pursuits. There is something about that that affects the people who do it in such a way that it is difficult for them to repeat. Often the teams are young and the same cast is there the next year. One year makes very little different in the life of an athlete, usually. And yet sometimes the same group of men who the year before achieved success find themselves well back in the pack when the totals are added up for the following year. When David killed the giant that day, he opened up a whole new chapter in his life. He would never again be the lowly shepherd boy in Jesse's family. He is about to experience the pressures that accompany success. I have chosen this day to use the New International Version of the Scripture, which more accurately translates a very significant phrase that appears three times in this lesson. The phrase is translated in the King James Version by the words, Behaved himself wisely. The NIV translates this phrase according to the contemporary meaning of the term. Please note the three occasions of this phrase in your Bibles. First of all, verse 5 of chapter 18. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. Verses 14 and 15. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. Verse 30. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. To behave oneself wisely is, according to the translators of the NIV, commensurate with being successful. David succeeded. His success began when he killed the giant, but it continued in all of his efforts. He has come a long way, this young shepherd boy, and the price of success is about to be exacted from him in the fullest sense. Few people can survive success. For every 100 who live through adversity, there is only one who can live through prosperity. David is one who survived it. Before we see why, let's examine what it cost him. The first thing that we note as we read in the 17th chapter about the aftermath of his great success with Goliath is that David's success created a whole new family for him. David's success creates for him a whole new family. Now the last part of the 17th chapter of 1 Samuel is confusing to many who read it casually. Some have tried to criticize these verses by saying 
This section of the scripture proves that there are discrepancies in the Bible. Because here we are shown a conversation between David and Saul in which it is evident that Saul doesn't know who David is. While we have already discussed the fact that David has been often in Saul's presence, soothing his difficult moods with his music. If David was in the presence of Saul in the earlier chapters, how is it that now Saul doesn't even know who he is? And this is based upon these verses, beginning at verse 55. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? And Abner replied, as surely as you live, O king, I don't know. And the king said, find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked. And David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. Now, please note carefully what is going on here. First of all, in the conversation between Saul and Abner, we have a kind of flashback in the story to what took place between the king and his chief of staff as David was going out to war with Goliath. This is not chronological in the order of the text, but it is simply a statement concerning a conversation that Saul had with Abner as they watched David go to war. Or Saul said to Abner, as he was going forth to war, whose son is this youth? And then he said, inquire whose son this youth is. Please note that Saul is not asking Abner who David is. He knows who David is. He is asking Abner who his father is. Whose son is he? The critics, if they would just read the text carefully, wouldn't make such stupid statements. David is not unknown to Saul. Saul is trying to find out what family he belongs to. He either has never been told that or did not register with him. And now he's trying to find out whose son David is. And the same thing is true when David comes back from beating Goliath, carries Goliath's head in his hand, and he walks into Saul's presence. Saul asks David the same question he had inquired of Abner. Notice, and as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him, brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, not who are you, but whose son are you? And David answered, I'm the son of thy servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. You say, Pastor Jeremiah, why did Saul need to know whose son David was? It's quite evident to me if you read back what we've already studied. Do you remember when David went up to meet his brothers and he was standing there during the war and nobody wanted to go fight Goliath? And David said, what will the man who defeats Goliath get for his reward? And you remember what they told him? It's back in the 25th verse of the 17th chapter. Let me just tell you what they said. Said he's going to be made wealthy. He's going to get Michael as his wife. And we're going to take him off the tax rolls. Now Saul is asking about David before and after his defeat of Goliath because he can't carry out his promise if he doesn't know what family David belongs to. He is going to give David great material blessing. He needs to know his family. He's going to marry David off to his daughter Michael. That's a family responsibility. And he's going to move Jesse and his family off the tax rolls. And so it's important that he know who David is in terms of his family. He knows David, but he wants to know about his family. 
Now there's a reason in our story today that adds to those three reasons. Not only did he want to materially reward him and marry him to his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel, but notice verse 2 of the 18th chapter. We're told that from that day, from the day of David's victory over Goliath, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. Saul had to find out whose house David belonged to so that he could notify Jesse, David is not coming home again. We have conscripted him to the king's service. He is now going to live here. Now, the interesting thing about all of that is that overnight, David has had his entire life turned upside down. The change that accompanies success is often overwhelming. It is never the same again after the big success comes. The silence of the hillside is soon to be replaced by the noise of the palace and the solitude of the sheep who never talk back is about to be replaced by the teeming multitudes of admirers who throng David wherever he goes. Sometimes when we view success from a distance, we covet it not knowing all that is involved. David's life changes radically. Once before the success, he is of the family of Jesse. Now he is being totally transported and permanently relocated as a part of Saul's inner family. And ultimately he will marry into the family as he weds Michael. Major change in David's life and one that takes some getting used to on his part. It is one of those things that often destroys people who succeed. One of the men of our church has been very deeply involved with the NFL over the years, and we have had many conversations about what happens to young men who come out of college having never had two dimes to rub together, all of a sudden are plummeted into the success of the National Football League, get large bonuses and large salaries, have all kinds of money that they have never had before and have no knowledge of how to care for, and all of a sudden we begin to read about them in the paper, they're involved with drugs, they've gone bankrupt, they're in deep trouble, they're in over their heads because success has so totally changed their environment, they have not been able to cope with it. So the first thing that happened to David when he had success was that he had a new family. Now, notice secondly, David's success created for him a new fame. Reading in verses 5 through 7 of the 18th chapter, once again from the New International Version, listen carefully. Whatever Saul sent David to do, he did it successfully, that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased the people and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now, it has always been very difficult for me to get too excited about biblical novels. Sometimes I think novels almost uh, are less exciting than reading the Bible itself. You know what I speak of when I speak of biblical novels, uh, modern contemporary writers taking the stories of the Bible and embellishing them with some bit of imagination and writing them as a novel. I did have the opportunity to collaborate with Carol Carlson when she wrote the novel on the life of Daniel, and that was most exciting because it is so very biblical, and she geared her writing to the information in the text. As I began my study of the life of David, somebody put in my hands a novel on the lives of David and Saul as they play against each other. And in that novel, which I read periodically just for my own blessing and encouragement, there is a contemporary description of that which I have just read to you from the text. I thought it would help you to get the vivid color of what was happening in this particular moment in the life of Israel. 
Toward the midday, the dripping skies cleared into an afternoon of blue and gold, and the air became balmy. David mustered his 300 guardsmen in their shining casks and purple mantles and led them to the rim of the Valley of Benjamin to welcome the king's return. As the young men swung across the marketplace, the townsfolk pushed eagerly forward through the stalls and barrows to cheer and to admire. The crowd was mainly feminine since all the homestaying manhood had risen before daylight and sped forth to join the ranks of the homecoming army. Eager granddams clapped their hands and cried shrilly as the warriors marched past, while olive-cheeked matrons and slender girls waved striped scarves and thrilled with their admiration. Comely maidens kept calling David's name and stretching appealing hands toward him in unconcealed hero worship. Then someone struck up a new song about the battle of Ephistamim, which David had not heard before. It followed the pattern of such national lyrics as the crossing of the Red Sea or the triumph song of Deborah with a swinging rhythm which made every word ring out clear. Each stanza ended with this chorus. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands with tremendous rising emphasis on the last two words. Such songs always swing easily into March time, and before Bodyguard was clear of the town, its members had picked up the lilt and were improvising their own words, sometimes clever and sometimes crude, but always ending in a mighty crescendo. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Overnight, David had become the theme of the hit song on the hit parade. Everybody was singing it. David has slain his ten thousands. He was a hero, a household word. A week ago, nobody had ever heard of him. David who? The shepherd boy who watches just those few sheep? Even his own brothers disdained him. But now, when the word David was spoken, and remember I told you this is the first word that we have ever found of this word being used as a name. The first time that I've found in the history up to this point where David is a name, so it was a very recognizable name. You say David today, and as we know, a hundred people stand up. But for David in that day, it was a very unique and recognized name. And when they said David, the beloved one, everybody said, oh yes, I know about him. You know who he is. He's the giant killer. And they sang his tune and praised his name. And the scripture tells us in verse 5, that all the people and Saul's officers liked David. And in verse 15, that all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. And in verse 30, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers and his name became well known. David was overnight a success. Not only did he have a whole new environment, but now he had to live with the pain of recognition wherever he went. I suppose the popularity of David may have been the greatest test in his life. It is very difficult for some people to succeed with success. But David had learned how to do it somehow in those days that he spent in solitude with his Lord. I remember reading some months ago a statement written by Bishop McNeil as he was addressing his theological students in a year past. And he said, popularity is the most dangerous spiritual state imaginable since it leads one so easily to the spiritual pride which drowns men in perdition. It is a symptom to be watched with anxiety since so often it has been purchased at the heavy price of compromise with the world. McNeil said, look out for popularity. 
it is deadly in its effect if it is not kept in perspective. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who I greatly admire, spoke of this problem in one of his writings. He said, success exposes a man to the pressure of people and thus tempts him to hold on to his gains by means of fleshly methods and practices and to let himself be ruled wholly by the demands of incessant expansion. Success is like a drug that gets into a man's blood and the more he has of it, the more he must have. The higher his salary, the higher he wants it to be. If there is one other player in the league who makes more than he does, he will not rest until he finally achieves that extra $100,000 that he must make so that he can at last claim he is the highest paid halfback, highest paid quarterback, highest paid center fielder, highest paid whatever who plies the trade. It is a disease which takes hold of a man. How easy it would have been for David in those days of tremendous popularity for his head to swell, for him to get off target and get away from the thing God had called him to do. Overnight, he had a new family. Overnight, he had new fame. I love what George Whitfield, who was probably the greatest evangelist before Billy Graham said, one time one of his friends came to warn him of the evils of popularity, and he said to that friend, I thank you heartily. May God reward you for watching over my soul. And as to what my enemies say against me, why, I know worse things about myself than they've ever said. That man had it together, didn't he? He wasn't impressed with his success. The third thing we notice as we look at the aftermath of David's great victory over the giant is not only did his success give him a new family and new fame, but now he discovers he's got a new foe. David's got an enemy, an enemy he didn't have before. And you can understand it. In fact, the novel I quoted from a few moments ago says that when Saul first heard the number one song on the hit parade, he responded like an angry baited bull. And well, he might have. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands was a great shout of acclaim for David. But for Saul, it was the beginning of the green sickness. <laughs> God had spoken to Saul earlier and told him that the kingdom was being taken from him, that he had been rejected as king. And the scripture says in 1 Samuel 15, 28, that the kingdom had been taken from Saul and given to a neighbor who was better than he was. Now, it hadn't actually taken place yet, but God told Saul it was in the process. And you can imagine Saul looking over his shoulder, wondering, when is this going to happen? And then all of a sudden, he walks into the marketplace one day and hears the number one hit song. And he begins to think, uh-oh, this is it. This is it. And the Bible says in verse 8 that Saul was wroth, and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. Now watch this. And what can he have more but the kingdom? In other words, the only thing left now is for him to be king. He's got the praise of the people. He's got the adoration of the women. He's got the popularity of the nation. And the only thing left for him to take now is the kingdom. I mean, it's just a matter of time. And he's in and I'm out. Well, jealousy got into Saul's heart, didn't it? And before it was finished, it would goad him into attempted murder. In fact, the record says that one day he was seated in his palace and he had the spear in his hand and he was in a bad mood and David was in there playing on his harp like he normally did. And all of a sudden, Saul was so filled with jealousy and anger that he picked up his spear 
and he pinned it to the wall. He meant to pin David to the wall, but David was too quick and he got out. The Bible says in this text that that happened twice. And I'd like to go back through the various emotions that Saul went through when David became popular and Saul became his enemy. First it was suspicion, then it was jealousy, and then he hated him. And finally, the second to the last verse in the chapter, we're told that David was his enemy for the rest of his life. Hmm. Well, there's still some more of this that we need to learn, and we'll take time out to do that tomorrow right here on this good station at this very same time. We're in the 18th chapter of the book of 1 Samuel, studying the life of David. We're so thankful that you joined us and so many of you who join us every day. This is a great time for us to visit around the scripture. I hope it helps you, encourages you, and gets you going every day. Uh, Many of you listen in the morning, uh, some of you in the afternoon and in the evening. But whenever, we're trusting and praying that God will use his word to enrich your life and to nourish you up in the truth of God's word. The Focused Life is the resource for the month of June. It's a beautiful leather edition of Psalms and Proverbs organized in such a way that you read the two books together through the month. And wherever you start, a month later, you're done. Five Psalms, one chapter from Proverbs organized to help you do it. And it will be a blessing to you. I promise. I hope you get your copy. When you send your gift, ask for The Focused Life. It's our resource for the month of June. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, The Tender Warrior, please visit our website. There you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of The Focus Life. A month of daily readings from Psalms and Proverbs in a beautiful leather-bound book. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions with notes and articles from Dr. Jeremiah's decades of study. Get all the details when you visit our website at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue the series, The Tender Warrior, on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. Turning Point presents the Jeremiah Study Bible. Jumpstart your Bible study with more than 8,000 study notes from Dr. Jeremiah to help you discover what the Bible says, what it means, and what it means for you. Available in the New King James and New International versions in standard or large print, as well as the English Standard Version in standard print. For more details or to order your copy, go to davidjeremiah.ca slash jsb. Take the young ones in your life on an unforgettable journey that will get them excited about the Word of God with the Airship Genesis Kids Study Bible. Then continue the adventure with monthly audio adventures on airshipgenesis.com. Plus, download the Airship Genesis mobile game, where kids will travel back in time to the life of Jesus. Blast off with the young one in your life at airshipgenesis.com. In 1972, Kathy Rigby wanted to win a gold medal as a member of the U.S. Women's Olympic Gymnastic Team. Hampered by an injury, she still performed well, 
but when the final scores were tallied, she had not won a medal. Heartbroken, she took comfort in something her mother told her, doing your best is more important than being the best. In our competitive world, everybody wants to be number one, but we should follow the simple advice given by the Apostle Paul. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Success is pleasing Christ, not pleasing men. This is David Jeremiah, encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's definition of success on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.